0: Hello, and welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 25, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news. With me, a rather stuffy Dan Wood.
1: <laughs> and a rather hay fevery Ravi Ebert. <laughs> oh, we're clawing our eyes out this week. Yeah, I, just, I was just walking across to the studio, and God, was, my eyes were streaming. <laughs> so okay, much hay fever. The
0: time of day we record this show is like half past seven in the evening, and like, yeah, all the pollen's falling from the sky, so. Yeah. Uh,
1: you might sound a bit bunged up today.
0: <laughs> now, every week on the show, Ravi and I talk about the big technology and retro gaming stories. And then, in the second half of the show, we have a special guest on. Now, this week, I think it's fair to say this guy could possibly be the most influential guest that we've had on the show
1: so far. Yeah, this is Richard Bartle, Professor Richard Bartle, and he's the inventor of online gaming, basically. He started multi-user dungeons, Mm -hmm. which were kind of, you know, the text adventures like Zork and stuff like that. This was a way that they could all play on a computer network together. He was a creator of the virtual world. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. This guy essentially invented online communities, really, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And the kind of idea of it being free and open. It's uh, going to be a really interesting interview, guys.
0: And kind of obviously going forward today, you know, you wouldn't have MMORPGs without
1: the work that he did back in the late 70s. Yeah, not at all. We'd we'd all be sitting there playing co-op games, <laughs> you know. We wouldn't be in these giant virtual worlds.
0: So uh, Richard Bartle on the show in about half an hour from now, and uh, thank you so much for all your votes on the um, the podcast awards that we were up for. We did come close,
1: yeah, close, but um, well done to Retro Asylum.
0: It did go to a worthy winner, I've got to say. Congratulations yeah, to the guys. And
1: uh, if you're checking out Retro Asylum, look on their YouTube video at the moment on their channel mm-hmm. because they're doing every single CD32 game. Oh, really? A review of every one, so I'm not sure where they're up to. <laughs> but there's quite a lot to watch already.
0: Isn't there about like 80 or 90 games?
1: Oh, there's more than that. I think there's it? about 100 and... Twenty thirty, Right, so okay. We'll see.
0: <laughs> Foreseeable future taken up on their channel then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but thank you for your votes on that, guys. And obviously, congratulations to the guys over at Retro Asylum. And, uh, you know, it's just great to see someone that, you know, another podcast that does retro
1: gaming getting that recognition worldwide as well. So Definitely. And the fact that there were so many retro yeah. people in the actual awards. It Absolutely. was really cool. Maybe next year, eh? <laughs> yeah, maybe next year.
0: <laughs> right then, let's get into this week's stories. We're going to start off with um, something that actually started out. <laughs> as an April Fool's, but now has been turned into a real product. Now, this is called the the Smart
1: Boy. Yeah, and this is really cool. I've seen it all over all the newspapers, like Metro and everybody's been covering this. This has been a a major kind of... This is a major news item.
0: So essentially what this is, it's kind of a, a smartphone holder that gives you Game Boy controls on your Android phone. It connects via the, um, the USB port on the bottom of your phone. But not only that, this is not just like an emulation thing. You can even put Game Boy and Game Boy Advance cartridges into the back of it.
1: Yeah, this is like <laughs> so cool. You know, it's I guess it's communicating with the bottom of the phone. Yeah. And then it's kind of translating the uh, code on the cart.
0: Yeah, well, I guess it must kind of load up some kind of... Um, Game Boy emulator on there but you can actually read the code off the original yeah I mean, but use. it's
1: directly accessing the cart, so Absolutely. It's, well, it's amazing
0: it's really good as well because um, I've not actually held one but from the reviews I've seen apparently the buttons do feel very much like an original Game Boy so because that's always been my complaint about emulating on phones it's kind of like you know you've got to use those
1: horrible on screen controls oh I hate those the circular ones where you have to kind of go round on the joystick and they never work yeah Yeah, they never work at all do they
0: so having the actual you know d-pad and the buttons and everything like that um this looks awesome and apparently this was originally just come out as an april fools a few months ago and they got that much reaction out of it that they're thinking oh well we may as well make these things for real so
1: uh there you go they're coming out why, why don't they uh, do it so you could add the camera and stuff? Maybe you can. <laughs> like, who knows what accessories will work with this. Well, it's down like the app we were talking about last week. that yeah, sorted, yeah you? there you
0: go. And the price tag's not bad as well. It's coming out for a $60, so um, I'd assume that's probably about very,
1: 45 quid. Very good price for something like that.
0: And they uh, will be out in December this year, just in time for Christmas.
1: Yeah. They know what they're doing, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely.
0: <laughs> now, um, we've obviously, you know... Got a bit of a history with online, Ravi. We've been using the internet for quite a while now. Um, Yeah,
1: since uh, demon internet, I think, in my (laughs) days.
0: Yeah, do you remember your early search engines as well? Stuff like AltaVista? AltaVista
1: Dogpile, I used to use, which uh, searched all the engines. Lycos, I remember as well.
0: Alltheweb.com, that was a good one.
1: Geocities.
0: I must say, though, I've never really been um, that polite when putting search requests into a search engine. Unlike uh, this one, 86-year-old grandma. Did you read this story?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love this story. I think it's great. She, um, she was typing in the search menu, and she's kind of done it in a way that you talk to somebody mm-hmm. or you'd be requesting information. So she's like, please translate these uh, Roman numerals. Thank you. <laughs> it's like so polite in English. Well, her name is May Ashworth,
0: 86-year-old lady from uh, from Britain. And it was actually her uh, grandson. He'd opened up a laptop and seen like, you know, this was on a screen still in the search history. And he sent a tweet out. And since then, it's gone viral all over the world. He actually said that he thinks his grandma thought there was a physical person there at Google's HQ, <laughs> manually replying to each search result. So uh, you know, it's uh, it's quite nice, though, isn't it? And also, not only did a lot of the papers and stuff pick it up, but Google themselves have seen this tweet. Yeah, they responded, didn't they? I love their reply as well. Dearest Ben's nan, hope you're well. In a world of billions of searches, yours made a smile, and they also answered a query as well manually on here too. So nothing like good old-fashioned manners. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Get your get your uh, retweeted by Google. There you go. I applaud you, man. Now there have been lots of really simple solutions for um, getting retro games in your living room recently and there's a new one that's just come on the market that's been getting quite a bit of coverage recently. Tell us about the Eagle Box.
1: Yeah, the Eagle Box looks really nice. So it's an Android-based gaming system and uh, it's got Bluetooth, it's kind of, you know, got HDMI out and all the stuff that you need. But it also supports 1080p, so I guess it's going to be upscaling stuff. Um, it's like a little home console that you can basically play PS1, MAME, Dreamcast, you know, as many things as you can emulate in Android, mm-hmm. but I think this is all pre-set up and uh, enables you to do stuff like key mapping for the well, controls. It comes
0: with a controller as well, and looking at that, I mean, it looks very similar to the, uh, the Xbox remote control, doesn't it? The yeah. Xbox controller yeah. it's uh, obviously, uh,
1: blatantly inspired by that, but it looks pretty comfortable, I've got to say. And it's got a remote as well, so maybe you could chuck cody on there as well and use it as a media center as well as your gaming console
0: well from what i've read it comes with cody out the box anyway so oh, excellent. It, it is essentially an android tv box um but the guys at funstock i think they're the guys behind this and i've watched a few demonstrations on youtube and what happens is this is quite interesting because not only does it you know come with all the standard android tv stuff and mm-hmm. cody's on there but it has an emulation store on there as well Okay. So what it means is, like you mentioned, all those different consoles are kind of out the box compatible with it. Um, but I was watching a few YouTube demos, and they've kind of got this retro gaming store on there where you click the games and they download to your um, Eagle Box for free. Mm. <laughs> so I'm not sure how they've licensed that or if yeah, it is. or
1: who's hosting it,
0: you know. Well, it's got stuff like Mortal Kombat and all that on there as oh, well. Wow. So. Well, it,
1: it looks like a pretty capable system because it's, a you know, quad-core here, 1.5 gigahertz. And they're saying uh, it will support up to 16 gig of flash as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's got like a USB port on it so you can do external storage. Yeah. And uh, uh, it looks it's pretty much like you said, you know, it's um, plug and play. So I think these devices are great though because, you know, I've got PCs that are capable of running MAME, like no problem and all that, but it's always a bit of a pain to get MAME and stuff running and emulators configured on a PC and they I, always tend I to break. love these
1: little boxes because I have them near my TV. They're silent. It's all in one solution. You know, you just have your one power sprite, it doesn't take up much room, and it's simple. Rather than having a big PC that you turn on, all the fans activate, and all the <laughs> monitors, you know.
0: Supping all the power.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this you can just have under your TV, nice little kind of console. And it's great for taking around friends' houses for parties and that kind of thing as well. Oh, yeah. Worms, we were actually playing the other day, and I decided to make a, a Worms dedicated Android box.
2: <laughs> because we had
1: such a problem finding a good version, I just took it around my mate's house, and you mm-hmm. know we were doing four-player. it's great. Cause, I mean, you could technically set this up on your own, but I think having
0: a solution where you know it's got this store on there that makes it really simple, and the amount of systems that it emulates out of the box, you know everything from like the Amiga to the Atari Jaguar, the Game Boy, the Mega Drive, thirty-two X, you know, yeah. it's all set up for you. So, and the pricing of it's not bad seventy nine ninety nine.
1: Really good, and I guess like setting up the HD and everything would be a real annoyance, you know, especially with the BIOS, isn't it?
0: You mentioned then it comes with a remote control and this game controller. I mean, buying them separately would be about 30 quid anyway, yeah. wouldn't it? So, yeah. you know what I mean? it's Quite quite a good deal, I think, actually. Yeah, we'll look out for the Eagle Box, guys. Absolutely. We'll pop links in the show notes, like every new story we mention, at retrohour.com. Now, you found a nice little follow-up to a story that we mentioned a few months ago now, this um, Amiga 1200 replacement cases Kickstarter.
1: Yeah, this is on uh, Indie Retro News.
0: Essentially, what this Kickstarter is for is um, remaking Amiga 1200 cases, because we've talked about it before, you know. You know what happens to Amiga cases when you leave them for a while?
1: (laughs) Yep, yellow.
0: (laughs) Yeah, rotten tooth yellow after a bit. And you know, you can do the retro writing and all that kind of thing as well, but it is cool to get brand new cases made for your vintage hardware. And uh, when this story first broke, we did mention some kind of the enhancements that this... um, New case has over the original one. There's even like mounting places in there for boards like a Raspberry Pi or the Kira. You know, if you want to use um, the Amiga's keyboard on a
1: like a Raspberry Pi to emulate the Amiga, for example. No, this this looks really good, and I was just you know it got me thinking when I just saw it, and I thought, well, Raspberry Pi, you could have one and an Amiga built in there, and then you could have some kind of sharing interface that they have with the Linux stuff, and you'd probably be able to run you know Firefox on it, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or, or
0: these programs for a bridge. Well, you could do it kind of like VNC, couldn't you, I guess? Yeah, just open, yeah. so you can not get VNC
1: on the Amiga. That'd so be you could it. have like a little tiny credit card-sized thing that just gives it a massive boost as well in there. Well, I and saw, it would still look original.
0: Well, know? I saw a video the other day of a guy, um, he had an Amiga 1000 and a Raspberry Pi linked up, and he was using the Raspberry Pi to get the A1000 online, and he was yeah. doing bulletin boards and online gaming and all that with it as well. Excellent. So you could have that built into this case, couldn't you?
1: Yeah, yeah, and these look really nice. You know, they've also got a little slot that they're going to do underneath the p mcia slot which will hopefully be for compact flash cards. so you know you'll be able to stick them in the side very easily yeah rather than having it like you know hanging on a piece of
0: uh, masking tape or something <laughs> yeah. like most of us do and even the back of it as well is they actually supply lots of little cutouts so you can put like hdmi or dvi you know on that expansion bit on the back of the amiga 1200 so, and I've read even, you know, the, um, where the badge on the case goes. A lot of people make third-party ones. Yeah. And apparently it's a little bit deeper to accommodate some of like, the bigger ones on eBay and stuff. Yeah. So,
1: Well, I think this is good for people who aren't as crazy as us ripping up the cases. And, you know, <laughs> they just want a kind of nice solution. And it'll look very clean as well.
0: Well, they made these with, uh, I think it's a 3D printing kind of process they've okay. done for it. But, I mean, you know, that's so advanced now. These things, from the pictures here, they look indistinguishable from the original thing.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I was, I was thinking, are oh, these with the
1: original molds? or something but
0: no no it's they're not but yeah it's like you know you couldn't tell could you by looking at it no what's even more exciting is that they've announced another kickstarter that's Mm. going to be starting on the 1st of september
1: for replacement amiga keys oh (laughs) that's the one that i want to get to because i've got a couple of uh a1000 keyboards 2000 keyboards that are very expensive Mm -hmm. and i want to sell them But the keys, there's a few keys missing. Vital keys as well, so.
0: And Amiga keys are quite awkward. You can't just stick any old PC keys tops on them, can you?
1: The little springs underneath and the little plastic bits, they're all very important, which ones you get for it to work.
0: You know, one thing I, I like about this, we're also going to be doing black CDTV keys
1: as well. Oh, my God. <laughs> That'll be wicked. We'll be able to do the conversions. Because
0: yeah. <laughs> if you're not familiar with the Amiga scene, the CDTV was like a weird Amiga that came out that looked like a video recorder. And it had a black keyboard, but, you know, a lot of guys over the years have tried to make their Amiga 500s and 1200s black by painting them. But to do that, they've cannibalized these CDTV keyboards.
1: Thus making them very rare. And they go for you about know?
0: 160 quid now yeah. in the original state. So it'll mean that
1: people stop cannibalizing them if you can buy them. Well, TVs, I've had so. one sat at home and I've been thinking, Black Amiga. Oh. <laughs> Don't
0: do it. Hold on till September, Ravi. Yeah. You can do it. So, uh, yeah, we'll pop a link in the show notes if you want to find out a little bit more about that. Now, uh, we'd like to cover retro gaming conventions. There's actually one that's been um, happening up in the northeast for a couple of years now. I love the name of this one as well. Nurg. <laughs> yeah, Nurg 2016.
1: Yeah, I heard they'd done an interview Uh, I think it was either on RGDS or Maximum Power with the organiser of NERG, Mm -hmm. and it sounded like a really cool event There's a lot of the focus is on arcade pinball machines, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, they kind of try to appeal to both groups of people, so they try and get the young people involved as well as the old retro heads. Cool. And they were saying... Last year, they had more young people buying stuff that weren't alive when the consoles were there than olders, you know, so there's a new generation that will come into this event. Well, we've talked about that. I mean, there was a thread on Reddit a couple of weeks ago, and it
0: was like, who are retro gamers? And um, they put like a little poll in there. And the amount of people that were like 19 to 24 that were into like, you know, Super Nintendos and Mega Drives and all that. It's crazy, isn't it? You know? But this event here is coming up, um, it's their fourth one now actually, uh, happening in Gateshead on July the 2nd and the 3rd. Um, I think usually it's held in Gateshead Stadium, but this year it's going to be at Gateshead Leisure Centre. So um, it's a different venue to what it has been over the last couple of years, but I, there's a there's a YouTuber I watch called um, Retro Gamer VX. Okay, you've seen any of his channels? No, no, he's no. like, you have to link me. Well, he's really good. He's a Geordie guy. He has like mainframe set up in his basement and in his living room and all <laughs> that. He's like, and he's got like um, I think it's called a Quantel paint box. This was like a really early 90s graphic workstation that like broadcast studios used i think the one that he's got in his house is actually the same one that itv used for um the kids tv program nightmare
1: jesus he's yeah. got
0: the original like you know proper mainframe and all that set up in his <laughs> wow. house so but he did a video last year at this nurg did a tour walking around and all that and uh, i think um a couple of the guys from red dwarf were there as well
1: yeah yeah i think they have quite a few stars there but um the main focus is on the machines mm-hmm. so we're so looking at what
0: What they got here, like 100 video arcade machines, 60 pinball machines?
1: Yeah, they're saying, you know, they'll have the Star Wars arcade, Old Frogger and, you know, Space Invaders and all the kind of original stuff. But yeah, the pinballs as well. Remember how in demand they were when we went to a play expo? We
0: couldn't get on them, could we? No,
1: (laughs) it was just like, (laughs) I couldn't believe pinball was so popular still. I do love pinball though. Oh yeah, it's great. It's the original kind of uh, nerdy arcade thing.
0: Well, it's like, you know, when when I was a kid, we grew up in a pub. My mum and dad used to be pub landlords until I was about 10. And we had a pinball machine in one of the pubs we lived in, and like, I would just spend hours on it. Just something about the physical... I mean, I love games like, you know, um, I've got a few of my PS4 and that, and even like pinball fantasies and mm. stuff like that, but you can't beat the feel of a, an original pinball machine.
1: Well, they're both from the same family, aren't they? Arcade machines and pinball. They're all kind of big buttons and clicky things. <laughs> great. Well, was it wasn't
0: like is it Williams, they were kind of behind yeah, lot like, of the original yeah. uh,
1: pinball machines pinball as well. Pinball 2000, so. you should watch that documentary, Dan. Oh, was that on YouTube? Right. Yeah, when I've they tried to do the new pinball machine, and they kind of did projections and holograms and stuff. It's really really good documentary.
0: It's a big scene for pinball still, though, isn't it? Yeah. There is, so, definitely, yeah. And, uh, well, you know, you come along here, 60 pinball machines, that'll keep you busy for the weekend, won't it? <laughs> definitely. It's <laughs> make your hands after that. <laughs> yeah, you run out of change, though. <laughs> so uh, tickets are priced at just 15 quid for one day, or 25 quid for a weekend ticket. My family live in the northeast, and I keep hearing about this event after it's on, and I always miss it, so I might have to get back up home that weekend, 2nd and 3rd of July. Nice. Um, I thought this was quite an interesting discussion on uh, Reddit this week, name five consoles that you would say are absolutely essential to any retro console collection.
1: You're you asking me to name five.
0: Yeah, I know I've kind of dropped this on you, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so I had a little think about this before.
1: Name five. I'd, I'd say the NES mm-hmm. definitely, Mega Drive, uh, N64. Oh, interesting. PS One. Yeah. And maybe an Amiga, I'd stick one in there. <laughs> Just,
0: uh... You've covered quite a wide spectrum there as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, you kind of do get, cover quite a lot of bases with those machines. The ones I kind of think about this before, you know, I've said a bit more spare time today than you. Yeah. <laughs> but I put the uh, the SNES, like you said. Um, so I think, you know, the SNES and the Mega Drive, if you're talking about those, you know, the, the Sega Nintendo wars, obviously we mentioned there's a movie coming out about it. Mm. I think anyone that's into retro gaming would kind of want to experience those systems if they're getting into it now and uh, want to kind of find out what all the hype was about back then. Those two systems are worth having. Um, The NES, just because Mario and, you know, it was absolutely massive back then. I put the PS2, because you can play PS1
1: games on that too, and the fact that... that,
0: Isn't it still the biggest-selling console ever?
1: I think so, yeah. Yeah. uh, I think the NES as well. There's an interesting thing about that. That was the first time I used many things, which is, like, the first time I used a light gun on Mm -hmm. Duck Hunt. And, you know, it was the first time I did a two-player fighting game with my friends. You know, it was like... Very innovative and kind of it brought the gaming back, didn't it? I remember the Atari Mm -hmm. with the old cassettes and then the stick and it was just horrible. And then years later, what's this? Oh, nice new console, you know. Well, I think
0: the NES so, didn't, didn't that invent the D-pad. The D-pad started on the NES, so yeah. I mean,
1: so you know, it's the first of many things. Yeah, for innovation, absolutely.
0: And you mentioned Atari there. I put the Atari Twenty Six Hundred in my list too because it's yeah. well it started, isn't bit it? Wood grain. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, we would appreciate your thoughts as well. I mean, we started using Facebook a bit more recently as well. Might put this as a little poll on there as well. So it'd be interesting to find out what people are thinking.
1: You know what I was thinking? Mm-hmm. I was thinking, wouldn't it be a good time to buy up a Wii U? And I was thinking maybe you could buy a sealed Wii U and Mm -hmm. a complete collection at the retail price it would be. And do you think this thing's going to be like the Virtual Boy in the future? Like completely... Well, sales are not far off. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One of these rare Nintendo things that didn't sell that well and...
0: Well, that E3 the other day, I think they only announced one Wii U game. Yeah, well, it's
1: all about Zelda, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think yeah, that's the only yeah. one they announced. Yeah, so be an interesting thing if you can get some cut-price Wii U's for your collections, guys. Shouldn't your attic, it'll be worth about 700 quid in a few years, won't Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you mentioned Nintendo there, let's go to their uh, arch-nemesis back in the day. This is quite cool, a little video that you found on Facebook. Um, Dominoes doing like Sonic and Sega logos, and uh, this is basically Dominoes falling down, isn't it? And doing yeah, really cool patterns.
1: it's kind of like your your standard Dominoes pictures, but this mm-hmm. guy's kind of obviously a Sega nut, yeah. And he's done, <laughs> you know, Tails, Amy, he's done Knuckles, Shadow, all of the kind of characters, and it's just satisfying to watch Dominoes <laughs> fall over. <laughs> I always find that nice. You
0: know, I I used to have loads of Domino sets when I was a kid, and I do nothing like you know quite as advanced as this, but it is that moment of satisfaction because he spent so long setting it up. And looking at this, it must have took him about two hours to do this. Yeah,
1: yeah, because they're all kind of layered, so when they drop down, the picture becomes relevant. But yeah, it's a fun little thing, I thought. And if you make
0: one mistake with it, you've got to start the whole thing again. (laughs) Or if a domino falls to the side of something, it must have took so long. (laughs) What I love as well is, um, he's actually put all sound effects in this video too. Ready? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah he's that into it
0: and it's had uh, it's had over a million views so far on uh, on facebook in the last 18 hours so oh, uh yeah. this is going all
1: over it's the place going so. viral absolutely worth a watch now uh, have you been watching much of the euros um no i've just been seeing fighting and kind of not wanting to watch it really it's all been a bit horrible
0: well i must know i'm not into football in the slightest but i do appreciate a good football video game oh and uh, this will appeal to you. There has been uh, another unofficial CD32, Amiga CD32 release.
1: Yes, another one to print off.
0: <laughs> this <laughs> one's called Football Fever. So essentially what they've done is um, put together 11 of the best Amiga video games, um, football video games, onto a single compilation CD with a nice menu. And uh, you've got stuff on here like uh, Empire Soccer's on here, Kick Off 2, um, Sensible World of Soccer 96 and 97. Oh, cool.
1: This is really good because... Uh, Manchester United Europe or Manchester United Soccer. It's one of the
0: most expensive games
1: for the C D thirty two.
0: Did they get a proper C D thirty two release then? Yeah, okay. yeah.
1: Well, you can get it boxed, but like people are trying to sell it for three hundred, four hundred quid. Mm-hmm. So it's quite good having this <laughs> on a compilation. And again, you know, like a lot of these CD32 titles that we talk about, they come with,
0: uh, you know, disc labels you can print out, and they've done, like, a nice graphic so you can have a CD inlay. And uh, there's even a little, uh, little sticker on there as well. Officially an unofficial Euro 2016 product. <laughs> so, <laughs> so cool
1: because the menu screen is a football pitch. <laughs> and then uh, all the kind of outsiders listing all the games. It looks really good.
0: And it's even got FIFA International Soccer um, on here as well, which I never played on the Amiga.
1: Yeah, I didn't play it on the Amiga. I, I think it was FIFA 95 that I played on the Mega Drive mm-hmm and stuff but. yeah I think
0: it was the 3 I was the first one I played but yeah. I, I didn't realise it came out on the Amiga to be fair yeah. but they've got it on here apparently forced to uh, NTSC mode for faster gameplay so mm. uh, you know, if you are getting into the spirit of the football they the must moment,
1: have the good ones because they haven't got Gazus
0: <laughs> international <laughs> soccer I remember you said uh, was it Saint and Greavesy for the Commodore 64 yeah. Yeah, that, that was comedy uh, or oh, Italian 90 as well I remember that in the C64 yeah yeah, that, that was oh a bad game actually so uh, yeah if you are into the footy and you want a new uh, CD32 title obviously completely full like all of these on these CD32Cover's blog spot. We'll pop a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, uh, there's a new Sinclair Spectrum game um, released as well. I wish you'd a little poll on our Facebook today asking people what their favourite um, ZX Spectrum games were. A lot of replies as well. A lot of love still for the Spectrum.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's uh, quite a Spectrum crew out there. And also, you know, I think it's growing because of all these new Spectrum releases, Spectrum mm-hmm. books, new hardware. It's great. And new games as well now. Yeah. Now, this is called... Um, <laughs>
0: The Pietro Brothers, and it's by Nointando.
1: Nintendo. Um, I wonder where
0: they got the inspiration for that from. <laughs> so essentially, these are our two Italian plumbers. Um, they're brothers, and they live in some kind of uh, platform game world.
1: Do they have a lady that they need to catch? <laughs> I think they
0: might have, yeah. I think we may have heard of this somewhere before. <laughs> so uh, this has actually been posted on the World of Spectrum um, forum. It looks very similar to Mario. You've got kind of the bricks and the pipes and all that as well, little tortoises mm. and that kind of thing too. And I think it's only kind of a demo version of it at the moment and the guy's saying he actually needs a musician to help him out on this game. So I think he's going to make it into a full game and release it for free.
1: That's really cool though because looking at it, it looks kind of Nezzy graphics. Mm-hmm. But you know, Mario <laughs> like was kind of Nezzy but on the spectrum you don't expect to see this many sprites on the screen yeah. or, you know, you don't... I don't know how it scrolls. I'd love to see that.
0: Well, looking at this as well, I mean, it's, um, it's kind of got, like, like all Spectrum games, have that kind of dark black background as well, and those really vibrant kind of like neon kind of colours that the Spectrum's famous for. I think it looks really nice, actually. And uh, like you said, you know, there's quite a lot going on, on the screen here. They've even got like, you know, kind of Mario and Luigi or whatever they call the characters in this, both on screen at the same time.
1: I think, you know, it's uh, quite an achievement for the Speccy, actually. Yeah, definitely. I'm just looking at a video at the moment. Yeah, it looks really good fun. Yeah. It, the scrolling's not good it's fixed to one screen yeah well, but, but yeah <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool yeah and uh, the reaction looks good when you're hitting the blocks and stuff good it's spike a, collision yeah, and all that yeah definitely well if you
0: haven't got any uh, skills of making specky music as well I'm sure this guy would like to hear from you because he needs a soundtrack for it apparently well so. there's
1: plenty of colour bleeding as well so <laughs> it'll keep like you all good spectrum vibes, games yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: hey. yeah so if you want to find out more obviously theretrohour.com retrohour.com will uh, link you up with this guy if you want to do the music for it if you're up for that now, we mentioned that, um, you know, some kind of famous people in the world of music are quite into retro gaming. We've mentioned Calvin Harrison, the Amiga, Kanye West and the Amiga, and the... Uh, Turbo graphics. graphics yeah.
1: yeah, his new album.
0: Did you know that Nas was not only a keen um, Nes player, but also he had a Rob the Robot. <laughs> <laughs>
1: wow, that's amazing.
0: Now, there's been this picture shared. Um, it was in his bedroom in NYC in 1993, even before he did the Almatic album, you know, we're talking early 90s, and he's there just chilling out on his bed, Nice CRT monitor. And in the background, you can see not only a original NES, but also Rob the Robot sitting proudly on top of it as well.
1: Oh, excellent. Yeah. So do you think Rob was helping Naz with his early (laughs) tunes? Yeah, moving his arm along like hitting the drums.
0: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rob the Robot's an interesting product because I've only ever seen one in person once. And that was at a video games museum in Rome that I went to last summer. Um, I don't know if it ever came out in the UK, did it? Seemed like a very American
1: thing. The only stuff I've seen has been videos online from America. I've never seen one in the wild, so...
0: I know the reason that it came out in America. Have you heard the story of why Nintendo released it? Uh, No. Well, you know, obviously they had that video games crash in like 1983 in America. Yeah. You know, famously buried Atari pretty much, didn't it? You know, in more ways than one. Um, But... They had the Famicom was out in uh, Japan at the time. They wanted to release it in America, but because no one was buying video games, they thought if we put this little toy robot in there, we can get it into Toys R Us and stuff as a toy.
1: Ah, okay. So, yeah, it was like kind of... Yeah, no one wanted them on the video after the video games crash, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a toy, not a console. Yeah,
0: yeah, and just happens to That's play it. these screen games as yeah. well. So a bit of a Trojan horse kind of thing, really. Which um, I know there's only like what, about like three games of a ever Trojan made for robot. Right, yeah. <laughs> there's only like three games ever made for the thing, but that was a pretty genius marketing move, really.
1: Oh yeah, really smart that.
0: Is so I mean, to be fair, you've got Rob the robot to thank for, you know, probably the reignition of the video games industry. So. Naz obviously appreciated him. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for checking out this episode of The Retro Hour. We'll be back again next Friday. You can get the show from our website, theretrohour.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, all your favorite podcast clients. And now we're going to hand you over for the next half an hour. I think this one is going to be so interesting.
1: Oh, it's going to be great. We've got Professor Richard Bartle, the founder of Multiplayer Online Gaming. And we'll catch you next
0: Friday. to the Retro Hour podcast Richard Bartle. Now uh, it's an honour to have you on the show. We thought you know, you, you're bound to have some interesting stories to tell as uh, someone who has been into gaming for such a long time but we thought we'd get a little bit of background on you first of all. Um, is it true that you invented role playing games when you were 12 years old then?
2: Only for my own personal use i didn't <laughs> uh, i didn't invent them um, for the rest of the world no uh, but i did indi- um, i was playing role playing games before i'd heard of role playing games yes, I did but i don 't want to give the impression that i invented all of role-playing games, if you mm-hmm. see what I mean. Um, it was just something that I was doing for playing games.
0: <laughs> it's, well, did you come from a, a background a family that were really into uh, playing? I know you did board games and all that kind of stuff going up as well. Or did you come from like a, an environment where gaming was kind of encouraged?
2: Um, yeah, my dad and my brother, younger brother, we played a lot of games. Every weekend we'd play games. But these were board games, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> me and my brother would make games. Um, he'd make some, I'd make some myself. And... Um, Sometimes we play them, they generally work very good because we were only kids. But uh the the role-playing one that was um that was a game that I invented for myself just so as a way of telling myself stories. Mm-hmm. So um
0: and then after that you actually you worked as a bingo caller for a while.
2: Yeah, that was my summer summer job, well weekend job, and over the summer I lived on the coast in Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. Um not a lot happens there. Um, except the coast disappears into the sea. Um, It's got terrible erosion. But um, um, because of that, I mean, I was by the seaside. Um, I had a weekend job of working in the local amusement arcade where I called bingo. And as a result of that, I'm absolutely fearless speaking in front of crowds. And clouds, in fact, but crowds mainly.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you're talking then, you know, obviously this is before video games and stuff like that. What were kind of the seaside arcades like then? Was it mainly just bingo?
2: They had bingo. Uh, they had two main kinds of machine. There were like one arm bandits. A lot of things that were essentially gambling machines. So you'd put money in and pull a handle and then you'd get 80% of the money you put in back. Um, actually, they had this, they had this setting on, on the back or inside, which was um, liberal or conservative.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> so if you had it, on, had it on liberal, I think you might have got 80 or 90. If you had it on conservative, it was about 70. So what they'd have is they'd have a circle of machines of the same type. There might be eight of them. And they'd set one of them to liberal, the one that you'd see first and then the others to conservative. So one person would be on the liberal one winning, and people would go, oh, that looks good, and then go on the conservative ones, and then he would lose because of the setting. But that was one kind of machine. The other kind of machine was the, um, what you might call the experience machine. So something like uh, pinball would be one of those. Or we had some other ones There were um, flying your uh, craft, you know, you're flying like an imaginary aeroplane uh, over a 3D environment, and it did look 3D. Well, it was. It was a little model on a conveyor belt. So we had things like that. And um, they were, you didn't win any money, but it was fun to do. Mm -hmm. So they were the more game-like ones.
1: You being a bingo caller, um, how did this kind of lead to your first computer experience?
2: It was nothing to do with my first computer (laughs) experience. That was just a way of getting money Um, so I could give my uh, parents something towards my keep. My first computer experience, that was when I was at school there was a large british petroleum chemical works um over near hull a place called bruff and because it was um quite an unpleasant facility uh the people in bp wishing to um get on the right side of the community um allowed some schools um who had teachers with experience of computers to have access to this computer. So, um, one of our, um, teachers, Dr. Dorney had a, um, he had a degree in chemistry, but he was, um, a maths teacher, but he'd done some simulation work or something on the, uh, on a computer. Mm-hmm. So he had the necessary computer experience. So we, uh, we got on computers there and it was, um, 110 board paper tape. Um, actually we upgraded to the paper tape before then it was write things out on sheets of paper Coding sheets—they call them—and you had to write the, your instructions on the coding sheets. You sent them off to BP. Some um, typist typed them in. Then they were run, and then two weeks later, you got your output back. If the typist hadn't um, misread your or mistyped your um, instructions,
0: that's quite the debugging process, isn't it?
2: <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, the, the The test edit cycle was kind of long. It, uh, I'll tell you one thing though. It, Really does um, make sure <laughs> when you it, it makes you very careful about when you code because if you know it's going to take ages to find out then um, you're rather more um, keen to get things right the first time rather than just typing away and letting the compiler tell you what things are wrong. Um, you know, the paper tape was uh, was the big thing because we could type all that in ourselves offline and then just upload it. It only took an hour or so <laughs> over well. the phone.
1: Well, this was a giant mainframe machine as well, wasn't it?
2: The well, when you say giant um, in physical dimensions, yes. But we never visited it. We never got to see it. We just knew it was on the end of a phone. When I got to university, I could see the um, mainframe. And now there's we've got a... Look, where the mainframe used to be is now a computer lab with... I think we've got about 80 PCs in there, something like that.
0: <laughs> in the room that one machine used to take us. Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, it used to have a false floor as well, um, so that um, underneath that false floor were, I think, 29, might have been... 20, no, I think it's 29 um, carbon dioxide cylinders. If there was a fire detection, then suddenly, vroomf, the floor would explode and the room would be <laughs> flooded with carbon dioxide. Now, it only actually needed two carbon dioxide cylinders to flood the room, but it had 20, 29 because that way it would flood the room um, a lot quicker. Um, the thing is, if there were people in the room at the time, they would have been killed. But... Um, people were a lot less expensive than computers. Uh, And there was a mathematician who'd uh, actually run the numbers and found that um, if you deliberately killed somebody (laughs) like that, you would have to pay less in compensation than you would to buy a new computer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did mention when you went to university. I mean, was that always your dream to go to uni then?
2: Well, the thing was, where I grew up in East Yorkshire, no, no, nobody went, well... Only one in seven of the population went to university anyway back then. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of jobs that you now need a degree for, um, you would get with your A-levels. So it's like A-levels back then were the same as a degree now, an undergraduate degree now, um, in terms of um, what they'd get you a job in. So um, it was one of those things that he never came up because nobody went to university. But... When I was gradually getting into the towards the um, end of the what would then be the fifth year, I don't know what they're called now, but I'd be um, 15, 16. I was thinking then I could get to university. Mm -hmm. I'm smart enough, I could go to university. Um, I remember a particular um, careers interview when I was aged about. Seventeen, uh, where the guy was attempting p- to persuade me to join the army because that's where they sent a lot of people, and and uh, said, "Did you want to do that?" I said, "No, no, I don't. I want to go to university." And he was said, "Well, if you work really hard and try very, uh, then I guess you could get to university. It just wasn't something that people thought of back then because there weren't so many people went to university." But of course, that did mean that because fewer people went to fewer universities, there was more money for student grants. So I actually got a grant. I got money to go to university.
0: Were you the first in your family to go to uni then?
2: As far as I can tell, looking at my family tree, yes. I came from a pretty poor background. My mother was a school meals cook. My dad was a gas fitter. Mm-hmm. So um, people like me weren't supposed to go to university, but we did go to university um, if we were really really clever and wanted to do a subject that uh the middle classes didn't want their children to do like computer science mm-hmm. so that was where the window was and that's what i got in although i originally went to study maths
1: what was the kind of attitude towards computer science at the time then
2: well it's an engineering subject um engineering subjects were not regarded highly by um the majority of arts and humanities students, um, an engineer was somebody who climbed up a telegraph pole. So um, we weren't regarded very highly. Um, computer science is, was just one of these great levelers. Everybody there, believe, who was doing it back at the in the day, was what you'd now call a hacker. We were all there because we thought the computers were power, uh, the future. They were great liberators. They would be able to help save the world from itself. They were um, um means of expression. So the people who did computer science, we all thought pretty well, pretty much the same way. There you go. Not a lot to do with games here, is it? But <laughs>
0: well, It's nice to get the background on this kind of thing as well. I mean, obviously, we're talking like the late 70s. It's before the microcomputer boom um, happened here in the UK. I mean, how did you kind of get the time on the machines then? Was it kind of outside your course? Were you there on weekends and evenings and just like stealing any time you could get on the machine?
2: Coursework was all strictly regulated. Everything, we all had a certain number of contact hours on the machine. There was this system called resource control units and um, it, it handled a number of things. Things like um, how much paper you use cost RCUs and But the main thing was how long you were sitting live at a terminal. That costs RCUs. Um, And we didn't get to use terminals until the second year. So most of our first year was typing stuff into punched cards and standing in queues to hand it into batch so that the punch cards could be read. And then um, as long as there wasn't some kind of punching error, Hollerith errors they were called, um, you'd wait again and your output would come. And then you'd go back and uh, look at what it said and, make your make your edits by retyping the um, cards you needed to do. However, that was during the day. In the evening, the computer was not as busy. Um, the computing service, who were the people who operated the computer, um, which was a Digital Equipment Corporation System 10, deck system 10, mm-hmm. they believed that computers were a force for good and that people should be encouraged just to play on them. So... If you joined the university's Computing Society, then you were given a project programmer number, PPN, which was um, had a lot more resources on it, but it was restricted. So you could only use it in the evenings and at weekends. And it came with a caveat, you were not allowed to use it for academic work. So you could do it for anything other than academic work. And if somebody did use it for academic work, then they would lose the um, they would lose their account not only that they'd be marked down and possibly could take some other people with us because sometimes we had to shares ppns so this meant that in the evening we could just play on the computer and that's what we did we played on the computers we just wrote code cuz it's fun
1: so where did the kind of idea of gaming on the network uh, come from <laughs>
2: Of the network. Of <laughs> yeah, the network.
1: Well, well kind of rather than single player, you know. <laughs> Are you
2: guys, the network. Uh, yeah. We did we, we did actually have a network. We we could connect from the University of Essex via a I think it was it was either via Kent or UCL or Imperial or something like that. You, um to uh the what would later be called the Internet it was ARPANET at mm-hmm. the time or DARPANET, I think originally. Advanced Research Projects Agency in America, and we could get from Essex University over a number of short hops. so like with routers, except you actually have to log in at every router uh, to places like Stanford Research Institute, um, MIT. so we could get over to um American uh, universities, and um, they could come back to to essex if they uh, if we told them how to get through. Um, which was, um, so there was a network, um, and some people did get over. Joey Ichi, who is the um, head of MIT Media Lab, um, came over to MUD over what would later be called the the internet. Yes, there was um, a network, but most of the games we wrote were just for the single machine. Mm -hmm. However, there were lots of terminals attached to that machine, so multiple people could play on the same computer at once in the same way that if you stick four controllers on a, into a four USB ports, then you can have four people playing on the same computer today. It's just that we could have more than that because there was several hundred terminals.
0: Well, how did you meet um, Roy Trubshaw then? Because that's where the, you, you, you came up with mud with him then. What's the story behind you guys getting together?
2: Well, we were just both um, uh, had a desire to, um, to program, Mm-hmm. Um, he was the uh, secretary of the uh, Computing Society. He was a year older than me, so he'd already been through his first year. And he was the secretary of the Computing Society. Uh, and um, I wanted to join the Computing Society. Met with the chairman of the Computing Society, who was a friend of um, Roy's, called Nigel Roberts, who is now on um, ICANN, um, you know, the Internet um, Naming Company. Mm-hmm. Um, he's on the board of that nigel introduced me to roy as um i'd sh- i showed nigel something that i'd seen it was it turned out it um it was a printout from um a game we called advent but which was actually colossal cave mm-hmm. and i showed um nigel that and he said yeah that's colossal cave you need to speak to roy he's just starting um on this thing called mud i said oh right so um I did bump, um, Roy dropped by because we were standing in a queue to buy some tickets for a Lindisfarne concert. Um, and that's when I first met Roy, um, standing in line. Um, he appeared with the mandatory wad of, um, 11 by 14 inch green screen line printer under his arm that every computer scientist back then had to carry. Um, and, uh, we got we got talking. Then I went to see to see um, Mud later, and um, it wasn't he who showed me. It was another guy um, called Keith Rautenbach, who Roy had so whom Roy had given um, a copy of Mud 2 for him to comment.
0: So how did it work?
2: So the Deck system ten memory was split into two: the high segment and the low segment. The high segment contained only code, and it was not writable. The low segment contained only data and it was writable so if for example you had 20 students all running a text editor then there would be one copy of the editor in memory and that would be the um, it would be shared memory but not writable so none of the students couldn't change it for each other but each thing that the students were editing would be in its own piece of low segment memory um, and that would be writable but it would be unique to them so what Roy did was then he um, he wrote a Um, a test program and that was the thing that I first saw and he'd started work pretty well immediately on a game that he was uh, creating called Mud because if you've got a shared um, space Mm -hmm. then the thing you would immediately want to do is to create your own world Um, that's what you do isn't it so that's what Roy wanted to do and um, after he'd got that he got that running by Christmas 78 uh, then he spent the next year working on it and improving it, but he'd written it in an assembly language and it was getting more and more uh, difficult to maintain. So Roy rewrote it, he snapped rewrote it in a language called BCPL, which was the forerunner of C. Beautiful language, love that language. Mm-hmm. He got about a quarter of it written by Easter one thousand, nine hundred and eighty. And then he realized he maybe should be thinking about working on his final year project that he was supposed to have been working on for the previous six months. (laughs) So um, he handed over the code to me, um, and I'd been working on content. So I finished off the code. So I wrote about three quarters of the program, but Roy's quarter was the hardest quarter. And then I wrote almost all the content, what we now call content for the game our aim was to make a, a a world that was better than the real one because the real one sucked.
1: We saw that you kind of added stuff in the game like freedom for both genders, you know, the kind of uh, not the uh, class system in there as well. Um, was this kind of a, a deliberate attempt to escape maybe Britishness or...
2: What infuriated us was, was the fact that we were British, yes, yeah, well, not the fact that we were British, but, the, but um, British society at the time and how it regarded people who came from um, where we came from, from our backgrounds, because we were just looked down on. I've got a northern accent, as you will have noticed, and merely having a northern accent is enough for people with southern accents to regard me as stupid that's just the way it was um northerners you know working class not all that bright speak a bit slowly here's 10 pounds buy a house i've got a northern accent roy comes from um wolverhampton so he's got a, a, a sort of a brummy accent so roy speaks a bit like this what do you think you're doing oh, i don't know what you're doing i oh, don't you think you do doing. i can't do that what do you do? <laughs> so that's roy's sort of accent uh, so you know like i sound like the typical peasant roy sounds like the typical factory worker um We were not going to get far. Um, The real world wasn't going to um, treat us very well. Um, We were only at university because there was a slight window which allowed us in. The real world had some dreadful attitudes, still has some dreadful attitudes. People were treated as though their... It wasn't their qualities, their human qualities that um, defined them. It was their place in society. So that's the... um, the, the, the British class system for you, and Roy and I railed against it. We didn't like that. Well, nobody else did. It wasn't just Roy and I. It's just that Roy and I had the wherewithal to do something about it. And so we made a world where you could be yourself, become yourself, um, where it didn't matter what you were in the real world, whether you were disabled or whether you were 90, or it didn't matter. The point was to give a world where you could be yourself.
0: But well, you know, obviously no one else had really done this back then. I mean, what was kind of your initial impressions when you saw people interacting with the game then? Was it quite eye-opening?
2: We didn't know that there weren't hundreds of these across the world. We didn't know that we were doing something um, that no one else had done and some other people might say that we didn't. Other people were working on similar things around the same time. Um, when people started to play it, I knew what to expect because I'd um, played Dungeons and Dragons so I knew what role playing could do but not many other players had Roy hadn't played Dungeons and Dragons so um when they first started playing it they were playing as themselves and that was not how we wanted it we wanted them to f- be free from themselves not play as themselves so um I had to um that's when I put in um female characters and i had a plan for it I uh I had a debug character, which I called Polly, which was named after a parrot, you know, because what would happen is that um, I wanted a, um, something there that would just stand around as, um, while I was playing on one character, I needed another character like as, as, as a stooge there just to parrot back anything that I was um, wanted it to do. So I called it Polly. And, of course, when I added gender, Polly's a female name, so I added a female, ca- um, I made Polly a female character. And everyone thought, oh but you're a male and, and, and Polly's female. How, how how can that be? And, um, well, okay, well, you know that I'm male, but Polly's not. Polly's a different person. I'm just pretending to be Polly. Polly's role-playing. I'm, I'm role-playing Polly. Oh, wow. So other people have created female characters, you know, with a bit of a, <laughs> I'll play as a female character. Uh, in, so there were, there was, there were the... Um, defense of just doing it for a bit of a laugh but actually what they were doing was exploring parts of their own personality by being somebody else someone who's not them
1: well um, uh, kind of talking about mmos they seem to be falling into this set format and they're not creating kind of open worlds like you originally did and with with kind of new rules and original ideas um how do you feel about that nowadays
2: We do see some that are creating new formats. The best example recently um, would be The Secret World, which is much more fluid about what characters can do. Um, You can change between different roles. You can build... It's a skill-based system. It's a gem of a game. Really, really good game. Um, Trouble is, it's over-designed. But beyond that, it, it... it's, it shows what you can do. EVE Online also shows what you can do, but that's bled out into the real world um, and it's hard to role-play. It's hard to be somebody else when the, the, the real world is... You have to bring the real world in with you. Uh,
1: I've kind of found that Daisy and uh, a few of these kind of survival zombie mm. games are uh, making new kind of ways of interacting.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, Crowfall, which is coming out later, um, that's taking some new directions. What's happened is that uh, once World of Warcraft came along um, and took the Dicou Mud um, gameplay and um, industrialized it, if you wanted to make a game, then the obvious thing to do was to make it like World of Warcraft. Mm -hmm. Not that you were ever going to steal World of Warcraft players, but that's not how people see it um how investors see it but the more games you have people play and then they start to leave drift away and so you need to get more players if you've got more games you need yet more players so how do you attract more players well you can find unmined seams of players Ah, there's very few players in india let's go to india um or you can attempt to broaden the appeal of the game within the markets in which it already exists and that's the way that um, most of them went they thought okay um, how do we get people to play these mmos well um, they're a bit hardcore let's make let's soften them so they um make them easier to play uh, less harsh punishments um easier to um group with people um lots more rewards people feel good about themselves but they in so doing they diluted the gameplay and so eventually we reach a stage where MMOs, people, well, what was ever special about them? Why, would any, why did people used to love these games?
0: Well, you once quite famously said that you'd uh, you closed down World of Warcraft in an interview I read with you. Did you get yeah. backlash after that then?
2: Oh, just a few death threats. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I did actually get wow, death threats. Wow, really? Yeah. Um, but I figured that if somebody's <clears throat> um, means of killing people are to cast spells at them, I'm probably safe. <laughs> Uh, but um, the, the thing was that World of Warcraft had sucked all the oxygen out of the out of the room. I I actually like World of Warcraft, um, particularly at the beginning, it, um, and I liked it all the way up to um, the Wrath um, of the Leech King expansion. I'm not criticising World of Warcraft as a design; it's a really good design, one of one of the best designs. It's uh, but what's happened since then is lots of other things have come along, uh, but they've had to be dancing to the World of Warcraft tune. Now, so World of Warcraft, not through any fault of its own, except for being so damn good, made it impossible for people who were trying to experiment to experiment. Um, Blizzard also raised the bar on um, implementation so that if you wanted to make a game, you needed to have a game that looked good alongside World of Warcraft, which meant you had to have a lot of money. And if you have a lot of money... Um, then you tend not to want to lose your lot of money, so you don't want to take too many risks. So what happens is that the companies that were making games didn't take the kind of risks you'd need to take to get a revolution, and it was more of an evolution, and the evolution was in the direction of making games um, less intense so that the people who back in 2000 were being called Care Bears would now be hardcore. Then The concept needs a reboot, and it'll get a reboot because they're too, MMOs are just too good not to achieve their full potential.
1: Well, one thing I always find about MMOs is the kind of users end up defining the world, um, even though there's these set rules by some of the servers, users will kind of circumvent them or find mods or different tricks to kind of create the world. Um, do you find that interactivity, uh, was that happening in the mud world at all?
2: No, because in the mud world, we didn't let them do mods. Um, when we, we did, to start with, when we first, um, well, when Roy was working on it on his own pretty well, um, he an- allowed players to create rooms, create commands, create all sorts of things. And as a result, he found that things were inconsistent. Um, So there'd be different spellings of things, different punctuation used. Things would be incoherent. They just made no sense. Things would be buggy. They'd crash. Um, Things would be incredibly detailed in one area, not detailed in another. And it, it turned out that actually most people are about as good as, at designing MMOs as they are at writing novels. Yeah, everyone can write a novel, but do you really want to read it? <laughs> um, I had lots of experience in game design. Um, not that I realised it, but I did. And so I turns out I'm actually quite good at it as well. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why MUD took off, because the, the content was actually, for its day, quite uh, engaging. Plus, we gave it away. That's the other, the other good reason for well, it. I was uh, going
0: to ask about that, actually. She did yeah. give mud away for free. And I mean, obviously, after that, the microcomputer boom came around as well. I remember, you know, if you'd had a bulletin board in the mid-80s, pretty much all the BBSs had muds on there. Mm. Um, how did it kind of spread then? W- was the microcomputer boom, like, really helpful in that?
2: People heard about mud because we told magazines about it and they published articles about it. And then people came along over direct dial and played the game some of the major uh, figures of uh, the games industry dating from that time played mud some of them thought well this is pretty good but I can do better so they wrote their own and some of them didn't do better and some of them did do better and people played those games and thought this is good I can write my own and some of them wrote better ones and some of them didn't so people were writing their own games from scratch one of the games um, that was written was at another university at um, Aberystwyth University. That version, Abermud, was, uh, was Alan Cox, who later went on to be a, one of the like the Prime Minister of Linux. He rewrote that four times, and the fourth one was um, in Unix. And um, through another one, one of the players, Laurie was his name, and uh, he sort of ran about three or four muds as um, the Arch Wizard. And he passed it to a couple of guys in America who then put it on American university computers and it spread like a virus, whoosh, right away across, you know, 1,000s, 1,500 computers all running in separate copies of ABBA You
0: know, when people used to dial into your um, like mud server you mentioned mm-hmm. before, did, did anyone ever abuse it? Did you ever get hacked or anything like that?
2: We did get uh, abused. Originally, when we started, people were playing like when you'd play a, a, a board game, you know, if you're playing a board game and someone acting a bit of a jerk, then you say, well, I'm not playing with you again. And because you can see people, people behave differently when they're playing board games. And it was kind of like that with MUDS until Igor came along. Um, Igor being <laughs> Andrew Glaster, who's um, now a very, I, mean, I, think, I think he runs the Redwood, Red, Redmond um, Development, For um, Microsoft. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a very talented programmer. And he, because he'd been making his own games, he had a different view to the people who'd been mainly playing games. And that was if the code let you do it, then you could do it. So, like if you're playing real life chess and you decide, oh, I think I'll move my knight like a bishop, physics lets you do that. The only thing that stops you is your opponent. Saying you don't do that you know otherwise it's the end of the game. we may as well not play. But if you're playing computer chess, the computer wouldn't actually let you make the move because it's coded not to let you. Therefore, the rules of the game are encoded in the software. therefore, if the rules don't stop you doing something, it must be allowed. Unfortunately, some of the things that we could have stopped if we'd wanted to would have killed the game if we'd stopped them. Things like, um, how do you stop people from using bad language? Well, you just stop them from speaking, but then they can't communicate. And if they can't communicate, that cuts off all the social elements. So you want them to communicate. So how do you stop them using bad language? Well, you put in a profanity filter, but then they invent new profanities, like Scunthorpe, which is what they did for uh, America (laughs) Online.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. So, um, there's some things you just can't code out. And, he did that um he did have some of his own rules i mean he um he used to gank experienced players, but he wouldn't he wouldn't gank newbies, but he would um he really pushed pushed the boundaries and because of that in a, that meant that we had to evolve means of dealing with that kind of behavior um and he wasn't he wasn't evil he's not well, he wasn't an evil player he was just playing by um different set of, well not a different set of rules but a different interpretation of the rules um fortunately. Um, If you go by the um, maxim that if the game lets you do it, it's allowed. And the administrators, the wizard players, have commands like finger of death. That means that if they fod you, you can't complain. Because, well, why did you do that? Well, the game let me do it. Well, the game lets me do this. Boomf. Uh, Yeah, bad hammer. (laughs) (laughs) So um, we did have that ability. And also, um, the other thing that happened was because Mud was a game with permadeath, players themselves could gang up on people. And I made Mud so that just picking on people to kill them was, it was a non winning strategy. No one was going to get to, to wizard level doing that. With that kind of uh, approach, it meant the players could defend themselves. If someone was acting as a jerk, then they'd kill them. And if oh, I was just role playing, yeah, well, so was I.
0: Well, we were talking about um, one of the classic games on our show the other week, actually. Uh, There is actually an effort to um, relaunch Habitat on an emulation of Q-Link and the Commodore 64. I mean, do you think these classic games still have a lot of elements of interest for newer players then who have never experienced them?
2: Um, As museum pieces, yeah. If you played Mud One now, you could write a macro to play, you know, press one button and then half an hour later, you're a wizard. Um, But these, these are games of their time. So they're good as museum pieces, but they're not the things that you'd necessarily play for fun. Now, that's the early ones. The games that came after MUD, um, MUD 2, for example, um, those still hold up very well, and they are still a lot of fun, and if people were to play them, they would find that they are amazingly detailed, vibrant communities. There's so much goes on there, but they're not going to play them because they're text. The reason they're text is because we didn't have graphics when they were written, but now we have graphics. And it doesn't matter how good I tell you games are, how many different commands there are, the, the nuances that you can do, the things that can go on, the incredible storylines, the plot lines, the atmosphere. It's pointless saying that because people just won't play them because they're, because they're text. I guess Um, it
1: kind of interests guys like us because it brings back a bit of a memory of text adventures, but um, new players would not have that at all.
2: Yeah. Well, if you've got an imagination, you get the graphics. And what's more, you get better graphics than you do on um, on the screen because the graphics you create in your head are personal to you.
0: Well, Richard, hopefully people hearing our chat tonight on the show will uh, maybe, some people might have got an interest in checking out some of these mud games and the fact that now the, the whole world's connected <laughs> on the internet, I mean, you know, they're so simple just to log on and try on a website these days, aren't they? You can even they create are, your yes, own.
2: But um, no one's going to try them. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised. They, well, there's, there's some of them are, I mean, they've been on the go for, like, since the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Games bat mud for example legend mud they've been around for a long time and they've got a couple of thousand plays on them um the concept of free to play um as in not actually free to play that came out of muds akia that was invented um it, the concept was invented specifically for a text mud called akia by matt Mihaly mm-hmm. or Mihaya. don't know whether he pronounces it mm-hmm hungarian or not. But he invented that in the late 90s. Now it dominates not just MUDs, it dominates the um, casual games and apps and everything. Mm-hmm. Matt must make a couple of million dollars a, a year out of um, that one text MUD, Akia, because it's damn good. If, if people are interested in in MUDs and just want to check them out, then the, the site they should go to is MUD Connector, www.mudconnect.com, the MUD Connector, and that's where you will find MUDs thousands of them
0: a good starting
2: Um, point yeah that's that's your drop off and uh, you can look there for introductory ones or ones that are in your particular area that you like you know it might be cyberpunk or it might be fantasy or it might be historical or it might be um dragon ball z Z or z or whatever it's pronounced it could be it could be anything there's ones there for tolkien worlds and all sorts because it's not worth the um the effort of and McCaffrey to shut down Pern Mushaw sure. Is it Anne McCaffrey, you do that? Well, there's so many of these things. So you can find the right one and the people there will be welcoming because they don't get many newbies. And when they do get newbies, as soon as they find out that you are genuine and you're not just somebody who's um, there to uh, mock them or to um, try and get money out of them or otherwise scam them, then you'll find very nice people, very nice communities, very nice worlds. Um, but they're text.
0: Well, we'll pop a link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Richard, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on the show this evening. Um, If people want to keep up to date with what you're up to these days, where can they head to?
2: They can probably sign up for a degree at the University of Essex.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's that's where I'm teaching at the moment. uh, Still at your old uni? Yeah, yes, yes. I went out out into the real world to make millions, which I did, but not for me. And then I came back um, into academia. I spent half my time... Um, as an academic and half my time as a consultant to the games industry. So people who make make MMOs pay me money to go and tell them what they already know, which is kind of good.
0: And you've got a book as well?
2: Yes, oh yes, yes. Um, MMOs from the Inside Out um, and it's companion volume, MMOs from the Outside In. You get 700 pages in one and about four or 500 in the others. And if you like this book podcast which i can't imagine many people are still around but if they are then (laughs) there's a lot more where that came from in the in the books but
0: well hopefully you inspired some people to check some of these classic (laughs) games out because that's where it all started you know online gaming everything it it all traces back to that doesn't it
2: we weren't the only people who did online games but um i'd certainly say that mmos you can trace back all the way to muds in a pretty well unbroken well definitely unbroken um link, even the ones in China and so on, Mm. right place, right time really.